This is Healthy Rounds with Dr. Anthony Alessi, sponsored by St. Francis Hospital, Ratchford Eye Center, Hartford Healthcare, MD Advantage, and Yukon Health Orthopedic and Sports Medicine. Healthy Rounds provides general information regarding medical conditions and diseases. The information is not intended to create a doctor-patient relationship. You are encouraged to consult your own medical provider for advice that applies to your own medical care. And now, Dr. Anthony Alessi on WTIC News Talk 1080 and WTIC.com. Welcome to Healthy Rounds, the show that provides you with up-to-date medical information, and we answer all of your health questions. I'm your host, Dr. Anthony Alessi, and I welcome you to our 15th consecutive program dealing with the coronavirus. And here we are. Uh, well into this battle with the pandemic. The statistics are astonishing. In Connecticut, we've had 8,126 cases, 1,025 people who are deceased. In the United States, over 1.4 million cases of COVID-19. And as of this morning, over 88,000 Americans are dead. We are at war by any means. And one of the problems we're coming up against is we can't get straight answers. We can't get straight guidance on what to do. And that's one of our problems right now and what we're facing. Science and politics don't mix. When you try to mix the two things, you get confusion. Case in point, I listened to a press conference on Friday. The Secretary of Defense, a fellow by the name of Mark Esper, uh, gets up and he says, we will have a vaccine fully distributed by the end of this year. He, he said that loud and clear for us to know. Great. I hope he's right. But shortly after that, the Department of Defense Public Relations said uh, that's not what he meant. What he meant is that was the goal. The goal is to have something like that. So, again, People get caught up in the rhetoric of these press conferences, uh, thinking they're rallies and they have to make these profound statements. Uh, another profound statement, the new guy in charge of vaccines, uh, Monsef Slawi. Monsef Slawi is a Ph.D. researcher, and he said we will have a vaccine by the end of this year. But one day prior to when he was interviewed by The New York Times, he agreed with Dr. Anthony Fauci that it would take 12 to 18 months to have that. So, again, when these folks get up, we look to these press conferences for some guidance, some idea of what's going on. And, and what we get is we have a president who says we have vaccine or no vaccine, we are back. When somebody says we're back and makes, again, another definitive statement, you know, I, I work a lot in sports. That's kind of like spiking the football while there's still time on the clock. You don't make profound statements like that unless the clock has run out and you've won. So I've said this from the beginning of this program. The only person I listen to on that podium is Dr. Anthony Fauci because he tells it like it is. He doesn't give you a definitive statement unless it is clear and based in science. Now, a lot of people have said, we can't get control of this thing. Well, let's look at the two extremes here. The two extremes are, 
if you were to fully isolate everybody, right? Suppose no one left their houses. People who were in the hospital, doctors were there, nobody's leaving the building, okay? If you fully isolated, the virus would have nowhere to go. It would have no host. It would die in two weeks. No, that's the extreme. The other extreme would be fully open all the economy, make believe the virus isn't here, okay? And let the virus, as they say, run through, okay? In which case, you will have a lot of death, much like they had with the Spanish influenza. took four years for it to run through. So those are the two extremes of the range. As you move from full isolation toward full opening, the numbers of dead people is going to go up. And that's just the way this works. You could ignore it. You could shout from the highest mountain that you don't believe it. But those are the facts. The more people are outside and vulnerable to this virus, it will find you and it will cause the disease. And one of the problems that we're always facing here is the testing, right? We've been talking about this a lot on the program. The Abbott ID Now test, the 15-minute test that they're using in the White House and that has been touted as being the test to have. Well, here's what we're finding out. The Cleveland Clinic looked at this uh, on April 23rd. And what they did was they looked at 239 specimens, tested them in the Abbott ID Now and in the standard way of doing it that takes longer, longer. And they found 15% were false negative. A recent NYU study looked at the ID now versus the Cepheid test, which is a 15-minute test, and found 48% were false negative. That means 48% of the people who had the problem tested negative. And that caused the FDA to now issue a warning. Why are we in this mess? We're in this mess because that's what happens when you rush. When you rush the science, you want to rush tests out there, and you haven't done your due diligence. If we do the same with the vaccine, we're going to have the same problem. One thing we have found out about this virus, and remember we always say, we still don't know what we don't know. But what we've found out is that there's a small window of opportunity to find somebody that accurately tests positive. Case in point. What they've recently found is that when testing, with any test, okay, when your symptoms first appear, day one of your symptoms, and you're tested, 38 people out of 100 will test negative who should be positive on day one. On day three, that number goes down to 20% false negative. So again, 80% of the people who get tested on day three of their symptoms will be positive. When you go to day four of your symptoms, 100% of the people are false positive. So we have a very narrow window of testing. And that's why when we get back to our analogy of playing offense and defense, we've only been able to play defense, right? Identification, isolation, contact tracing. That's defense. Offense is treatment, vaccine. So 
We've not done a real good job of playing defense right now, as you can see by the number of deaths climbing. I mean, we're talking about over 100,000 people dying by June 1st. I actually think it'll be before June 1st, just based on the numbers and the way they're climbing. So with that, we've got to get a grip on this situation. And that's what we hope to do on this program. We bring you the science and we bring you scientists and people who are in the know. And then draw your own conclusions. We don't care about the politics here. That, that's, that doesn't play a role in this. That's not this program. If you, if you want to voice your political opinions, plenty of shows on this radio station for you to do that. This day in medicine, May 16, 1845, Dr. Elias Mechnikov was born. He's a Russian pathologist who developed the theory of phagocytosis and the concept of inflammation as a defense reaction. He won the Nobel Prize in 1908. The inflammatory defense reaction. Key point. We're going to take a short break, and then we're going to be back with my guest, Dr. Ashok Katarathara. He's a pediatrician, and we're going to be talking about PIMS, the Pediatric Inflammatory Multisystem Syndrome. I wanted to find a pediatrician to talk to who was in the know. I didn't have to go very far. Dr. Katarathar is my son-in-law, and he's going to be chatting with us about what we need to know because this virus has taken a turn, right? We said it was going to affect old people, vulnerable people. It's now attacking our children and grandchildren, and we better get a grip on it. With that, we're going to take a short break, and we're going to be back. You're listening to Healthy Rounds on WTIC News Talk 1080. We're back on Healthy Rounds. I'm your host, Dr. Anthony Alessi. In the second half of our program, we will be taking questions. Let me give you the phone numbers now, 860-522-9842 and 1-800-966-9842. You could also reach me at info at alessimd.com, and you can get me all during the week. We have several questions that have been coming up on that. My guest today is Dr. Ashok Katarathara. He is a pediatrician. He is in practice, meaning he actually sees patients at United Community and Family Services. And he's also my son-in-law. Ashok, welcome to the show. Thank you. Good morning. So, Ashok, yes. what is pediatric inflammatory multisystem syndrome? So, uh, I think the CDC is using the other term, MISC. Or however you call it. So it stands for multi-system inflammatory syndrome in children. Okay. So they have a working uh, definition for that. And the uh, first point is the individual should be less than 21 years with fever and lab evidence of inflammation and also evidence of multi-organ involvement like the heart, uh, you know, lungs, all that. That's the first point. Second point is no other alternative diagnosis. And third point is there is uh, evidence of COVID infection. It could be a PCR test. It could be an antigen test. It could be serology uh, or uh, suspected exposure to COVID. So these are three things. So for first one coming for fever, it should be temperature of uh, 100.4 degrees Fahrenheit or 38 degrees Celsius for at least 24 hours. And the lab evidence of uh, multi-system involvement, or invo that is the usual, you know, 
CRP, ESR, ferritin, all those tests. So that's the working working diagnosis right now. Ashok, one of the things we're always hearing is it's similar to Kawasaki disease. Uh, Can you tell our listeners what is Kawasaki disease and and how are they similar? So uh, Kawasaki disease is also a multi-system inflammatory disease. So the diagnose, the definition for Kawasaki is, you you know, it's very how we all remember it during our uh, med school. It's crash and burn. So burn is fever. So to be diagnosed with Kawasaki, you should have fever for at least five days. Again, temperature of 38 degrees Celsius, so 100.4 degrees Fahrenheit. That's burn. Crash C is uh, conjunctivitis. Technically, it is bilateral, non-exudative conjunctivitis sparing the limbus. Basically, just conjunctivitis with uh, no uh, greenish or yellowish stuff in the eye. That's C. R is rash. can be any form of rash anywhere on the body. It can be raised. It could be just the same level, small, big. A is uh, CRA, is adenopathy. That is the lymph node. So typically, the textbook definition is a one-sided lymph node. So if we put our fingers on our neck with uh, the fingers pointing towards the angle of our jaw, anywhere on the finger bed, if you can feel a swelling, that probably is a lymph node. So like I said, it's mainly uh, one-sided. S is strawberry tongue. So basically, your tongue looks like a strawberry. There will also be chapped, dry lips. And uh, H is hand and feet. Your palms and soles will be swollen with some rash. So that is crash and burns. For for Kawasaki, it should be fever of at least five days with four of these five symptoms of crash, C-R-A-S-H. That is the typical Kawasaki. Atypical Kawasaki is fever of five days with at least one of these symptoms. So that's the Kawasaki uh, disease that we have. So, so is, the, is, of, this, yes. the, the, yes. is the the distinguishing feature the COVID positive test? Uh, the fever also. that okay. And the fever also. Because for Kawasaki, you need to have at least five days of fever. Okay. Uh, for COVID, for the MISC, uh, they just are considering fever for 24 hours. But the systemic uh, inflammatory response is very similar. The lab tests are very similar. And uh, we don't know if the complications of these are similar to the ones from Kawasaki disease. We don't know that. We're still early stages. How do you treat Kawasaki? So uh, Kawasaki disease, we admit the patient under intensive care, IV hydration, and uh, you start IVIG. You're familiar with IVIG. You you use it a lot in neurology. Intravenous immunoglobulin. Correct. So that is the treatment for Kawasaki. And the CDC is recommending the same treatment for uh, the MISC also. Also, supportive treatment. For example, the uh, MISC has one of the components is uh, multi-organ failure. So if the heart is failing, you know, they'll give pressures, if uh, ventilatory support, kidney support, all that. But the mainstay of treatment right now is uh, IVIG, intravenous immunoglobulin, which they give over a few hours. Ashok, uh, I I, I guess... What's the take-home message for parents who are listening, for parents and grandparents who are listening today? What's the one thing you want them to know about MISC? So if your kid looks sick, please get help. So that's the thing. With the kids with Kawasaki disease, they are miserable. Like some, some, some uh, diseases make your kid miserable, like uh, flu. If your kid has a flu, your kid will be miserable, just crying, 
clicking all the time. Appendicitis, again, your kids will be miserable. Kawasaki, all the kids I've seen with Kawasaki, they're just so miserable. So same thing. If your kid is, has fever, it could be, you don't even have to wait for the whole 24 hours. Any fever, 100.4 degrees Celsius. Oh, by the way, please get a thermometer. Please keep one in the house. It's very easily available at every pharmacy. You can get any thermometer. So if your kid is feeling warm, check the temperature. Uh, you've been doing medicine for a long time. You might think, you know, you can uh, diagnose a fever by touching the kids and seeing. No, get a thermometer, please. And 100.4 degrees Fahrenheit or 38 degrees Celsius is fever. So there's no low-grade, high-grade fever. Below that, it is not fever. At that temperature or above that, that is a fever. So get a thermometer. If your kid is looking sick, get some help. You can try, uh, you know, uh, some medication for fever at home. You can try giving the kids some fluids and some food, but if it doesn't get better in a few hours, get help. Especially if there's any chance they were exposed to the virus, which is pretty high for almost everybody. So, Sadly, it certainly is. Yes, Ashok, so, thank you. Thanks for spending welcome. time with us today, and really thanks for everything you do clinically, seeing young children out at United Community and Family Services. Thanks, buddy. You're welcome, Doc. Thank you. Thank All you. right. With that, we're going to take a short break. Let me give you the phone numbers here. We're going to open up the lines in the second half of today's show. 860-522-9842, 1-800-966-9842. You could also reach me at info at alessimd.com. You're listening to Healthy Rounds on WTIC News Talk 1080. We're back on Healthy Rounds. I'm your host, Dr. Anthony Alessi. And I want to take time to, first of all, thank uh, Mike Olko, Joey Burgoyne. I, I didn't get to thank them. And, and and the reason is, it is so great. I'm even amazed at how well this works with me doing the show from home. And has been a tremendous uh, convenience, uh, thanks to their technical help. You know, in looking at the questions I get, and last week's questions as well. Many of the questions have to do with treatment. So remember we said being on defense, this is what we're playing now, but when do we get to start playing offense? When do we start scoring points? And that's when we get to the idea of treatment. So let's look at this. So far, the treatments we've been trying are drugs, and ways of treating other conditions. So drugs that have already been approved, that are used for other things that we're trying to apply to COVID-19. So the first thing that got the most popularity was chloroquine and hydroxychloroquine. And uh, it became popular because there was a limited study in France that did not use any controlled double-blind techniques to look at it. But uh, President Trump really got excited about it, and he had a good feeling about it. Um, but unfortunately, uh, the New England Journal published the study where they did give people hydroxychloroquine versus placebo and really found that it's not useful. There was no difference between giving someone placebo and hydroxychloroquine. Unfortunately, we also took a gamble on it and purchased 2.9 million doses from Pakistan and India. 
So, and there was a rush on this with people hoarding hydroxychloroquine. And I still get calls about this. I was on another talk show this week, and one of the callers wanted to get in touch with me because he wanted to get hydroxychloroquine for a relative who was asymptomatic. It doesn't work. Don't waste your time and your money. Next, azithromycin, which is an antibiotic. So you might say, well, it's an antibiotic. Why is it working against the virus? Why is it even under investigation? And the reason is because they felt that in combination with an antiviral drug, azithromycin may have an anti-inflammatory effect, but again, using it as a combination with another drug. Now, the drug we're hearing the most about is remdesivir. Remdesivir is an antiviral drug, so it's specifically made to fight a virus, and it was previously developed for fighting Ebola, but it didn't work for Ebola. So scientists and lab folks decided to let's try it on COVID-19. The only study we really have right now is very limited. And it looked at groups of 15 patients. And what it found was that in people who got placebo, 11 out of 15 patients died. Whereas those who got remdesivir, only 8 out of 15 patients died. Now, that may be significant, but in my book, it's not exactly reassuring that we have a miracle drug on our hands. And we have insufficient quantities. We have very few doses here in the state of Connecticut. So, again, something to be used. It's a last-ditch effort for people. It's something used in the hospital intravenously. The treatment we have had the most success with has been convalescent plasma. Now, this is something that's been used since 1934, okay? And that's what we're hearing a lot about. This is where you take the blood from people who have had the COVID-19 virus, and you take out the plasma, and you transfuse it into those who are seriously ill. And what it does is it, it, produ it transfers those antibodies that are needed to attack the virus. In order to donate, right now you have to have tested positive for COVID-19 and wait three weeks for your body to produce sufficient amount of antibody before you can donate. I find it heartwarming to know how many people have donated and how many people are trying to donate. And... By the way, I also find out in looking and talking to hospital uh, staff that it has been effective because we have plenty of it. So, again, that has had the most promising result. Another thing you're going to start hearing about is triple drug therapy. Don't forget when, when we fought HIV, okay, it wasn't just one drug. And... In this case, we're trying a, a triple therapy. Um, actually, it's, it's really four drugs, but when you look at it, it's three different antiviral drugs. Ritanavir, Lopanavir, and Ribavirin. So those are the three antiviral drugs. They are combining them with something called interferon, beta interferon. That is a drug we use for multiple sclerosis. 
in order to work as an anti-inflammatory. So basically, it's four drugs in combination. Now, ritanavir and lopanavir were both used successfully in the treatment of HIV. So this combination triple drug study is ongoing now in Hong Kong. And we're hoping that's going to have some promise. The next thing that's really helpful has been monoclonal antibodies. And we've never used it for this purpose. Now, monoclonal antibodies are antibodies we make, right? We're talking about antibodies you get when you have the infection. But we also have a way of producing antibodies by cloning them from a unique cell line. So probably the best example of this is a drug called rituximab. And you hear about that for treating people very successfully with arthritis, people with Crohn's disease. So we think there's some promise in using, I guess for for lack of a better term, artificial antibodies that are specifically directed to COVID-19. So those are the studies that I'm familiar with and have looked at. So there's a lot going on in terms of coming up with a treatment because we're going to need something and we're going to need something fast to work with us. Uh, I don't think the vaccine is going to be a doable thing by the end of this year. When we look at the numbers and the years it takes to develop a vaccine, the fastest, as I've said before, has been mumps. And that took four years. It took 20 years for a polio vaccine. So you might say, hey, what takes so long? And what takes so long is the testing, the different phases of testing, specifically phase three. What we're in right now is phase one of the testing, where we're trying it on humans to see if they produce a response. But in phase three, you need to look at thousands of people looking at the safety and efficacy, meaning the usefulness of the vaccine. And that takes time, and you cannot make a mistake, or it will lead to a huge downfall. With that, we're going to take a short break, and then we're going to come back, and I'm going to talk about several of the questions that have come in. Also want to go over some examples, and I have a surprise at the end of the program. So, Again, the phone number's here, 860-522-9842, 1-800-966-9842. You're listening to Healthy Rounds on WTIC News Talk 1080. We're back on Healthy Rounds for our last segment. I'm your host, Dr. Anthony Alessi. Um, before I get to a question, I just wanted to mention, we talked a little bit about you know full isolation versus full opening. And I have a good example of that. There is a skilled nursing facility in New Britain that is run by a veteran, and many of the residents there are veterans. I don't know his name. I don't know the name of the facility. I heard this on a national broadcast. I was driving and heard it on the radio. And what he decided to do to protect his residents was he would have his entire staff live at the facility. 
He set up trailers. He had an adjoining house. So all the workers, there was nobody coming in and out. All the workers lived there. And I think it was for several, I think he did it for like three weeks. So again, he isolated, he quarantined his entire facility. And the number of COVID cases he had in potentially a hotspot of a skilled nursing facility, he had zero cases. Zero cases among his staff, zero cases among his residents. So isolation works as hard as it is to do and quarantine works. With that, Jack, you're on the line from Glastonbury. Jack has a question. I don't have a question. I just have a statement. Um, I think that, uh, you know, I've been studying this for a very long time. Hydroxychloroquine, remdesivir, all these antivirals. And uh, I think there's a problem with the media when they start talking about this stuff because when you actually look at the studies and what's what's going on, there's some pluses and minuses. And, uh, for example, uh, one of the problems that the uh, doctors have with viruses, they tend to wait until the symptoms are pretty bad because there's no therapies that you can use early on, generally speaking, okay? Whereas if you came into a doctor with a rash on your hand or something, he could immediately prescribe something for that if it was bacterial. Do you agree with me so far about what I'm saying is on the doctors? No. No, I want no. no, because I, well, well, because we have treatment for the flu. So if someone comes in with the flu, we treat them with Tamiflu immediately. But it doesn't. But they tried out and it didn't work, right? Well, it works for most people. I mean, Tamiflu has no, been no, around no, for a no, long no, time. No, 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 with COVID though. It doesn't work. No, 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 with COVID. No, 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 no. Great. All right. So, so anyway, a doctor came up with a therapy. A Jewish doctor. He's treated over a thousand patients by now. And his results are very good. But he's been, he uses hydrochloroquine, he uses zithromycin, and he uses zinc. And it's this combination. If it's used early in the, pro, in the progression of this, it will, it will help people that are, in, 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 uh, you know, that are compromised. So he's been prescribing it to people who have com- compromised immune systems or elderly, and he's been getting very good results. But when you look at the media, you can't find anything on it. You've got to search like crazy to find anything on it. Okay? All we're, all we're talking about is hydrochloroquine. Okay. And yeah, and then hydrochloroquine by itself is not very effective. We all know that. Right. Right. Okay. okay. All right. All right. All right. So great comment. Thank you. We're going to pod you down, then I'm going to respond. Is that okay, Jack? Um, a couple yeah, of things. that's fine. Okay. Thank you. Okay. Uh, so a couple of things. Jack brought up the point that there's a doctor treating people with hydroxychloroquine, azithromycin, and zinc. Now, we've been hearing about that since the beginning. And we hear about these things because they are anecdotal reports. These are people just treating people and saying, wow, they got better. Well, guess what? Some people get better from COVID with no treatment. And that's why we believe in controlled double-blind studies. Again, let me explain. A controlled double-blind study is a study where the pa- a group of patients will get a placebo. Another group will get the drug. Those patients don't know what they're getting, nor does the physician administering them. So even the physician is blinded to that. And then you look at the results. So When that was looked at, 
and published in the New England Journal of Medicine. So it has to go through peer review. Peer review means, and, and it's something I do for journals, they send me papers and I have to review it, go through the numbers, and see if it's worthy of being published. So it's that peer review process that we have lived with for so many years that has gotten us to where we are and accomplished in science. So a physician who just kind of treats people with stuff like zinc, hydroxychloroquine, and azithromycin might think he's having great success, and I don't know where he's writing about it, but it certainly has not appeared in a peer-reviewed journal. So I, I understand Jack's position as well because we all desperately want something to work. We want to protect the population, but we have to do that in a careful, scientific way. So, Jack, if you have a reference, please send it over to me at info at alessimd.com. Another quick story, I guess, uh, that came up in the news this week that I wanted to mention uh, was Dr. Joseph Fair. He's a 42-year-old healthy male infectious disease specialist, virologist, who has been on NBC. He was on NBC last time, was April 24th. The next day, he flew back to New Orleans, where he's from, and he got on a crowded flight. But he had his mask, he had gloves, he wiped down his seat. The one thing he didn't have was eye protection. He has been in an ICU. He came out of the ICU this week. He was tested four times. He's an ID specialist, tested four times, negative every time. But it was clear to everybody that he had classic signs of COVID. So again, those numbers of deaths and those numbers of cases are probably much lower than they should be, even in this case. And this doctor made it clear he stayed home for a week to try and take care of the symptoms himself and probably missed that window for testing. So we have a lot to learn about COVID-19, and hopefully we're going to learn it fast and move along, and we're going to keep politics out of this. In closing, I said I had a surprise, and I, I think I want to, first of all, thank Joel from Simsbury and Leonia, his sister. Uh, Joel got in touch with me on email and said, you know, Dr. Peter Hotez, who is an MD-PhD, you'll see him on TV, he's on CNN all the time. He is dean of the National School of Tropical Medicine at Baylor College of Medicine. His job is developing vaccines. That's what he has been doing. And he is clearly a national, actually international expert on this topic. Joel got in touch with me to let me know that Dr. Hotez grew up in Hartford. So I shot him an email to see if he would come on and talk to us and try to explain things to us as to what's going on with vaccine development. So with that, he will be our guest next week. He has generously agreed to call in, spend a half hour on the phone with us to answer questions. So if you have questions for Dr. Hotez, we're not going to take live questions on the air. Send them to me during the week at info at alessimd.com, and we will have a great academic chat with him. Again, thanks to my guest today, Dr. Ashok Katarathara, for his insights into the pediatric complications of COVID-19. With that, Thank you all for listening. 
Please make a statement when you're outside. Wear a mask. It's the strongest statement you could make. Until next week, please stay healthy. This has been Healthy Rounds with Dr. Anthony Alessi. Sponsored by St. Francis Hospital, Ratchford Eye Center, Hartford Healthcare, MD Advantage, and UConn Health Orthopedics and Sports Medicine. Be sure to tune in next Saturday morning at 11 for more Healthy Rounds on WTIC News Talk 1080 and WTIC.com.